Over the years as pastor, you know, pastor to over 30 years as full-time pastor, it has been rare. I'm making a mess up here already. And usually we look forward to Easter and we celebrate Easter. But there is no Easter, there is no resurrection, and there is no celebration unless first you go to the cross. And, uh, you know, it's hard to preach the cross on Easter because we're supposed to be preaching about the resurrection. And I think that oftentimes we come away with half of the doctrine, half of the truth that we need to get a handle on. So tonight we're going we're gonna to look at the cross and we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different perspective than what I have in the past. And this is hard for me. There's two messages that I love, love, love to preach on the cross. One of them is when I preached last year, uh, who is it that Jesus intended when he said, Father, forgive them? I love that message. There's another message that we're going to hint at today, and it is, uh, which side of the cross are you on? Are you on the side of this thief, or are you on the side of this thief? But we're going we're gonna to look at the cross from a little bit of a different perspective, and I pray that God speaks to you through that. I'm going to start out in a weird place. This week, I have been reading through Judges. Now, I'm on that reading plan that we're going to use next year uh, for a, a preaching or reading through the Bible. We're going to be going through it in Sunday school. We're going to be going through it together as a church. I'm going to encourage y'all to read through the Bible chronologically next year. And this week, uh, we're in Judges, and I got to learn some new things about who a, a guy that is probably the worst of all of Israel's judges, a guy that from childhood I was kind of taught was some type of uh, superhero of the faith, Samson. Uh, I had this image of this, you know, muscular guy that looked a little bit like Thor, you know, who could rip down pillars of buildings and who could kill hundreds with a jawbone. And, and as I've read through Judges 13 through 16, 17 this week, I've learned that Samson wasn't really a hero at all. In fact, it's really kind of confusing because Samson is one of the few people who was a, a, the Nazarite veil, I'm going to have to say, was applied to him before he was even born. His mother was not able to have children, and uh, angel of the Lord came to his mother and said, I'm going to give you a child, but you're going to take the Nazarite veil while you're pregnant because your child is going to be a Nazarite, a Nazarite from birth which meant that he, he was going to follow certain restrictions that were stricter than, than any of the other legal restrictions that any of the Levites or anybody had to follow, and God was going to use him to accomplish some things in the life of Israel. Now, ultimately, God still used Samson to accomplish some things in the, in, in the life of Israel, but not because Samson was a good guy or a good judge. In fact, from the very beginning, some of the earliest stories, Samson was breaking his vow time and time and time again. He, he, he kills a lion. He's not supposed to touch anything dead. He kills a lion, rips it apart, uh, goes into town, comes back out. The bees have, have put, you know, have, have come to the lion. They've built a honeycomb in it. He reaches inside the dead lion and takes out honey to eat. Uh, he's not supposed to touch anything dead. So you just continually see him continually breaking his vows. He breaks his vows by, by getting together with harlots. He had a horrible appetite for uh, lust that he just kept given into that was tearing him down. Eventually, he ends up with this, this Philistine woman. I'm going I'm to cut this short because I want to get to the point. He ends up with Delilah, who doesn't love him at all, apparently. And she is uh, a, basically a paid spy. She's going to be given 
somewhere around the equivalent of thirty to forty thousand dollars if she can find out his secret to the string so that she can have him killed. All of this time, when you read Samson's words, he speaks of God, but he always uses the generic word for God, Elohim. This is the same word that the Philistines use for their God. It's just like us saying to God, and, and, and not the God of the Bible, but it could be like any old God out there, the, the, the God of the Hindus or the God of the Muslims or the, or the, the pagan gods that were idols. He, he just continually refers to God with the little g, God. It's as though he has no personal recognition or no personal relationship with Yahweh, the one true God, until... And this is, this is the reason that I use this illustration today, because at the end of Samson's life, if you remember the story, Delilah uh, finds out the, the secret to history. And I'll pause to say, I, I think I've also decided he is the dumbest man in Scripture. And not only does he have all kinds of other uh, uh, sinful uh, addictions and habits, but he is just dumb. D- d- Three days in a row, Delilah asked him what his, you know, what, you know, how he could be bound or how he could be lose his strength, and he lies to her, and she does it, and then she cries, and he says, oh, oh, oh you know, uh, and then she asks him again, and he tells her something, and eventually he tells her the truth. What does he think's going to happen? He's just dumb, and eventually he loses because of he gives up the truth. His eyes are gouged out. He's turned into a slave. He's made to do what was very demeaning work in that day by the Philistines. They beat him. They torture him. They make fun of him. Eventually, they're having a big celebration to their God, using that same word that Samson is up to this point used to refer to his God. They bring him into this temple that's filled with hundreds of Philistine men and women, and they're, uh, they're going to tease him and make fun of him. And y'all, well, we remember the story growing up is, you know, he, he's blinded and he, he asks the, the guard who brings him in there to, to lean him up against where the pillars at the center of the temple are. And then he pushes those pillars out and the whole thing caves in and he dies and everybody dies. And in some ways, he kind of fulfills the purpose for which God created him. He made the Philistines pay for what they were doing to Israel. But there's a, a, there's a little tidbit in there that I had never seen before. Right before he does that, he prays. And he, when he prays, it says, the scripture says he calls out to the Lord. He calls out, and the, the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. And his prayer is, Yahweh, please remember me. Strengthen me just once more. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my eyes. This is the first time that Samson has ever called God by name. He's at the end of his life. He's at the lowest of lows. He's blinded. He's weak. He's, he's completely powerless. And in the last breaths of his life, he calls out to God by name, and God answers his prayer my mind immediately went to the thief on the cross, immediately. Now, I don't know that Samson was saved. I don't know if he truly had faith. There's something interesting going on there because he had never called out to God personally before, and that day he did. And maybe it took him being blinded 
and tortured and beaten and weakened to come to a place where he was willing to recognize the God who had blessed him all of those years before, even when he was running from God. There's a whole other incredible message in that. But here's the beauty, and this is the reminder. That thief on the cross had not lived a day, not one single moment of what we would consider to be a, a godly life. But on the last day, while he's on the cross, already with the spikes driven through his wrist and through his feet, suffering before the world to see, stripped naked out there on the outskirts of Jerusalem, that one thief looked to the God of the universe and called his name. And Jesus said, yes. That's the difference that Christ makes when we call out to him personally. The title of the message tonight is The Cross Changed Everything. The Cross Changed Everything. Matthew read through, all the way through, Hebrews chapter 9 and as a part of our worship service. The message tonight is going to come from Hebrews chapter 10, just seven verses, verses 19 through 25. And this is a picture for you and I of the difference that was made by the cross. Therefore, now, Hebrews 9 into Hebrews 10, 18 up to this point has expounded upon the difference that Jesus that is talking about Jesus dying on the cross as the perfect sacrifice. There's never another sacrifice that's needed. Jesus' death has, has offered us the, the forgiveness of sins. The middle of chapter 10, you have these words. This man, Jesus, offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, the cross, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's you and me. By that one offering, by the cross, he has cleansed us by his blood, and we receive forgiveness of sins that last forever. Therefore, verse 19, brothers and sisters, since we have, have boldness, boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some who are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Verses 19 through 21 are kind of an introduction to three commands that he's gonna give us here in this paragraph. That introduction builds upon the cross. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of his sacrifice, we brothers and sisters, are forgiven by his blood. The emphasis in this text is not necessarily on have boldness, and generally when I've read this or I've heard it preached, that seems to be the emphasis on the first part, but the emphasis in this text is on the blood of Christ. Because of the blood of Christ, we can have boldness to come into his presence. 
Christ's sacrifice has opened the door for us. It is the blood of Christ that gives us boldness to come into the presence of a holy God. It is his torn flesh that has opened a new and living way into the presence of God. And you see that right here in this text. It is his blood that gives us boldness. You and I have no right to come into the presence of a holy God. Our sin disqualifies us from any kind of relationship with a God who is perfect and pure and holy, whom we in our sin have, have offended. But Christ's blood washes us clean of our sins so that we can come into his presence. Christ's broken flesh, his torn flesh, verse 20 says, has inaugurated a new way through the curtain. If you'll remember, the curtain, with that, that, that curtain that separated the holiest of places, the holy of holies from the outside holy part of the temple, the outside the holy part of the sanctuary. As the, the, the temple was, it had various courts of worship, the Gentile court, and then a court where only the Jews could come to worship. And then the, the sanctuary where only the priests could come. But then the holy of holies that represented the presence of God, there was a, a huge curtain there in that temple that separated that that presence of God. It's a symbolic separation. We know that that curtain couldn't hold God, right? But it was a, it was a, it was a, a picture that only through a particular obedience to God and a particular faith and a particular form of sacrifice could one priest once a year enter behind that curtain. When Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. One of the incredible miracles that, that kind of gets set aside. When Jesus died and said it is finished and gave up his last breath, that, that curtain in the temple was torn in two. No longer was there a need for sacrifice to enter into the presence of holy God because Jesus' flesh became that it tore down the curtain. When his flesh was ripped and torn for us, he opened a new and living way through him that we could come into the presence of God. And Jesus now, verse 21 suggests, functions as our high priest. The functions as a high priest over the house of God. The house of God is no longer a temple. It's no longer a physical building. The house of God is the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the people of God. And he, he is our high priest. We don't, we don't have to go through a priest to uh, give us orders or give us directions or to represent God for us or to represent us before God. Jesus is the high priest. The Holy One of God, the one who died on the cross, is our access to the holy place. If, if you don't hear that in those first few words, hear it this way. It's all about Jesus. It's about his blood, it's about his flesh, it's about his obedience, it's about his death, it's about his righteousness, it's about his access, and because he is who he says he is, if we put our faith and trust in him, through him, we have new life. We have presence, we have access, we have an eternal opportunity to live in the presence of a holy God, the source of life. 
Eternal life isn't just some gift that he has to grant. Eternal life is himself. He is life. And it's in him that we have life forever. So therefore, this is the introduction. This is the reason behind it. Christ is the open way. He is the door. It's his blood that gives us access. He's our priest. It's all about him. Because of that, because of that, we have three directives, three commands in this text. The first one is draw near with a true, with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure blood. Let us have confidence before God because of his sacrifice, we can draw near. One of the things that that means is even when I sin, and I still do, (laughs) right? Even when I sin, I'm never disfellowshipped from the family of God because it wasn't about my goodness that allowed me into his holy presence in the first place. It's about his righteousness. And so I can always, from the day that I put my faith and trust in Christ as a 12-year-old boy, from that day forward, I can come with confidence with my prayer and with my worship into the presence of a holy God. Even when I'm at my worst, I still can come with confidence into the presence of a holy God, full assurance that, that, I, that I have a Father who loves me, that, that I have access into his presence, full assurance, because it's not based on my faithfulness or my goodness. It's based on his, and his goodness never fails. We can trust his righteousness, not ours. Second, so the first one is we don't ever have to worry about access. (laughs) We don't ever have to worry about being able to come before the Holy Father because the cross, his death on the cross has made the difference. We have access into the presence of Holy God. We can walk in a relationship with him every single day, even when we're at our worst because of the cross. Second, we can hold on with faith. Even when we fail, because he is faithful. He says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Even when we fail, we can hold on to him by faith because it's not based on our ability, it's based on his ability. Verse 23 refers to he is the one who promised and he is faithful. See, the truth is we confess our hope in Christ. We say, I'm going to hold on to him and I'm going to, I'm going to live for him and I'm going to walk with him. And then we fail. And we think because we fail, something has cut loose. Nothing's cut loose because our hope isn't based on our ability to hold on to him. It's based on his ability to hold on to us. That was settled at the cross. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 3. Right after he expounds on the cross in Galatians chapter 2, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he turns to the, to the Galatians and he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Okay, you saw him, you know that he was crucified, and you know that you can only become a child of his, you're saved 
Galatians 3, 3, so you're saved by faith. Why is it that you think you can live this life in your own strength? See, something, somebody's lied to us. And in all honesty, when I was a 12-year-old boy and put my faith in Christ, I kind of had the Baptist church. And really, I, I loved the pastor because he was crucial and helped me come to Christ. But this is basically the message I got from him as a 12-year-old boy. Now that you've put your faith in Jesus, okay, you couldn't save yourself. You had to come by faith, faith alone. And that's the only hope you had of eternal life. But now that you're saved, here's this list of things that you're going to do as a good Baptist. And here's a list of things that you're not going to do. And it's up to you to try really hard to be a good boy. But you know what I found out? Not only could I not save myself, I'd figure that out. I'd put my trust in Christ for salvation. I couldn't be a good boy. I had no hope of being a good boy. And so what I learned later on is I got into college and then the Lord got a hold of my heart. I learned a principle. I can't. I, I can't be patient. I can't be kind. I could try real hard, but I failed miserably. I can't love as God loves. I don't have joy in the midst of horrible circumstances the way that God tells me I should. But I learned that those aren't my responsibility. They're a fruit of the Spirit. My responsibility is to have faith in Him and trust Him and walk with Him. And when I have faith in Him and trust Him and walk with Him, He, through His Spirit, empowers me to be the young man or the man that He wants me to be. It's not my ability to hold tight to him. It's his ability to hold on to me. All he asks of me is to be obedient and love him and walk with him. That's why even, even in the Old Testament, Paul uses that as an example over and over. Abraham was saved by faith. David was saved by faith, not by his good deeds. David would go to hell if it's based on his deeds. He's saved by faith. Our hope is not in our goodness. It's in his goodness our ability to hold on until the end without wavering. It's not based on our strength, it's based on his strength. So let us, he says, hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. That's the difference the cross makes. Jesus went where we couldn't go. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do so that we can have a relationship with his father come into the presence of his father, something that we can never do on our own. And then four, or third here, he says, let us consider one another in love and provoke one another to good works. Here's the bottom line. The cross enables us to have a new kind of community. The cross enables us to, to, be, to love and encourage one another. It encourages us to have a relationship with people that we would never have a relationship with otherwise. We would never be able to get along with. The cross in, it allows us or enables us to have a family of faith, a family of God that extends beyond and to a depth that extends deeper than blood relationships. And I guess in, in a very real way, we have a blood relationship. It's just not based on our blood. It's based on his blood. We're brothers and sisters because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. The cross is what brings us together. Every, every single one of us is in the same position without the cross. We're all on the same plane. It doesn't matter if you're uglier than me or better looking than me. 
we're not going to draw a dividing line here, but it doesn't matter if you're richer or you're poorer. It doesn't matter if you're smarter or you're dumber. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're, if you have better flesh. I talked about this a while back. Some of you have really, really good flesh. You were, you were pretty good people without Christ. I, I wasn't. It doesn't matter if you have great flesh or poor flesh. All flesh is going to die and rot and go to hell. Every single one of us is on the same plane without Christ. With Christ, every single one of us is on the same plane. We were outside of the family, now we're in the family. We were separated from God for eternity, we're now in the same family, headed to, to an eternal place and glory. And it's not based on our goodness, not based on our deeds, it's based on what Christ did at the cross. And because of that, we are challenged and encouraged to love one another in this text. Encourage each other. Faithfully gather together. In fact, some of your versions will include that as a fourth command. It's really part of one sentence. It all goes together. It's not that he's commanding us. There's not a fourth command that says, don't neglect the gathering together yourselves. What he's saying is, he, the command is to love and encourage each other. And part of the way you do that is you come together and worship together as a body of believers. That's a part of that command to encourage and love one another. I need you. Uh, let me just say, coming into last night, we had a Lord's Supper service like that. And Matthew and I wondered if it'd be me, him, and Nathan here. And we knew a few deacons would have to show up because they had a job. But I don't know that, that I've been as encouraged by the family of God as much as I was last night when we came together to take the Lord's Supper service together on a Thursday night on a busy week leading into a holiday weekend. When we come together like that to worship a holy God, we encourage and we build up each other. I know it encourages and builds up me, and I know it did Matthew. And that's why scripture commands us not to neglect the gathering together I spend a lot of time with outdoorsmen. I spend time with hunters. My dad was an outdoorsman. and My dad, who had some tough uh, things happen early in his life, uh, stayed away from church most of the rest of his life. He, he was one of those stories that he loved his pastor and loved his church, got married at a young age, and the pastor that married him left town with a pianist in a small country church. And it's, it scarred him. And I know other people like that, but, but my dad excused himself in some ways by saying, you know, I can, I can worship God in the, in the mountains or in the deer stand, you know, just as well as I can worship him in church. I'm going to pause there for just a second because I can worship God in the mountains and in the deer stand. Okay. I can worship him there, but I can't serve him there. I can't be an encouragement to you there. I can't receive encouragement from you there. The command of God's word is that we gather together, that we encourage one another, we build one another up. And, and, and if you're one of those people who says, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church, you're missing it. You don't really love Jesus. You can't love Jesus without loving his bride. You can't love Jesus and be disobedient to his commands. He says that. He told his disciples that on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night before he died. 
He told him, if you love me, keep my commandments. So don't say you love Jesus and hate his bride. Here, we're commanded that because of what Christ did on the cross, we have a relationship with one another that is beautiful and it's awesome and it's incredible and we should treasure that and we should be plugged into one another, building each other up, encouraging one another, loving each other. How long? How long should we do that? Until he comes back. That's what he says there in verse uh, 25. Encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day approaching. The darker the days get, the closer things we're getting to the return of Christ, the more important it is for you to be coming together, not less. And yet, Lee, we live in a world where people are becoming less and less and less committed to the body of Christ. Those who truly have been transformed by the power of the cross will desire to come together and worship and encourage and love on and be encouraged and be loved on by the body of Christ. And the closer we get to his return and the worse this world gets, the more important that's going to be. Even more so as we see the day approaching. It's the cross changes everything. Without the cross, we're without hope. Without the cross, we're dependent on our righteousness. Without the cross, we're dependent upon our ability to hold tight and to do what's right. And without the cross, we lack an eternal community of faith. But the cross changed all of that. The cross, the shed blood of Christ, gives us confidence to enter into the presence of God in his holiness and his righteousness. Because he is faithful, he'll hold on to us. And he'll never let go. And we have a, we have a family of faith that we can come together and celebrate with and be encouraged by and be loved by that will help carry us through till the end. The cross changes everything. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.